Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This week's episode of Screen Talk is sponsored by On the Record. Described by The Guardian as a landmark, no documentary has so powerfully connected the causes of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. On the Record presents the stories of Drew Dixon, Sherry Schur, and Syl Lai Abrams as they grapple with their decision to become one of the first black women in the wake of Me Too to publicly accuse hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons of sexual assault. From filmmakers Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, whose body of work has covered sexual assault in the military with the Invisible War, college campuses with the hunting ground and now the music industry. On the Record dives into the ways black women are too often ignored when alleging sexual assault and the cultural forces that pressure them into silence. For your consideration, On the Record is now streaming only on HBO Max. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Gunn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large, and I'm in the middle of a puddle of snow here in New York. How's the sunshine out in Los Angeles? No complaints. It's balmy. <laughs> I think we're in the 60s. <laughs> it is the season. Some things don't change, though. This is a strange time for us to be recording because we, we usually record right before the end of the week on a Thursday, and we're kind of caught right before the holidays and the end of the year, but then after all this other stuff has happened, so we're sort of we have a lot to talk through, but also a lot to anticipate right now, because by the time a lot of people hear this podcast, the New York Film Critics Circle will have voted over the weekend, the Los Angeles critics will vote. So we'll have that new piece of information that will contribute to award season per usual. Uh, but we can't totally get into all of that right now, ex- except to sort of speculate about what seems likely to happen in those situations. And I suppose one starting point would be IndieWire's Critics Survey, which did its 15th edition this past week, simply because a lot of the critics who vote in both of those groups also vote in this survey, 221 people. All right. So I have a question for you on that. Where do you get all those people from and who are they? That's a lot of people, 230. Even the Critics' uh, Choice group is is about that size, but it's a different group entirely. So... The longish answer, which I think is valuable, is to, to, to put in, to explain in terms of the history of this survey, which was originally, there was a Village Voice year-end film survey that went away and IndieWire took it over. And then at a certain point, the Village Voice survey came back and IndieWire kept going. But when it was taken over, at that time, the film editor of the Village Voice, who had been uh, sort of booted by the new management, Dennis Lim, he kind of helped us organize it that year. So a lot of the, the initial foundation of emails 
came from the Village Voice survey. So was it a very city. international group or no? More American? And so over the years, what's happened is that the the number the the scope of the survey has grown as we've started to look to uh, ways of sort of expanding beyond our initial network. And so we have multiple docs with breakdowns of people in different countries and and you know sort of making sure that we can be as representative of possible of different aspects of the film critic community so as much as it's important to get the trade critics and newspaper critics who are willing to do it not the new york times because they have rules but a lot of the other dailies and so forth they do that but we also want to get people from you know influential blogs and so forth so it's a pretty good representation i would say overall but you no, know, at the end of the day, it's also contingent on people to do the service. So we invite a lot of people. Not everybody always does it. So, so. if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, because I remember sending you, I would always send you uh, the top newspaper critics and 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 magazine critics as because you were all. I, it felt for a long time like you were uh, favoring online critics in this in this survey. But would you say if you had to? do a demo on this largely male largely white male and younger than the most powerful uh media film critics no i don't think that's accurate at all in fact i don't have the exact numbers because there's a difference between the number of people we invite and those who participate but but there is a a, a substantial number of, of women at, at the very least i could tell you a substantial number of women who who vote i don't know if it's a majority or not because we haven't crunched the numbers in terms of who actually participated but we did we do track that we started tracking that a few years ago and it's something that's a part of the conversation in terms of are they mostly younger i mean i can tell you people like todd mccarthy and amy talbin certainly voted so, you know, it's, I, I do sometimes remind people and there's there's a bit of a hands on process that I think is. Valuable. No, you're very good about that. You reminded so, me. So I did participate. And, and I think, look, a lot of these surveys don't exist anymore. It's really valuable in some ways to, I think, reach out to as many people as possible to get them to vote, because the more people you get, the more you get a sense of the scope of films that have critical support. That's why we publish the top 50 because you go through that top 50 and it's fascinating to see which films got, got it's so important. It's so important. I was reminded of all sorts of things that I still need to see and that I've missed. And I look forward um, over the holidays to doing a lot of, of catching up. But um, if you were to say, uh, if you were to guess what the difference between this group and the New York film critics group taste, if what, what, what each right. group represents, yeah, I mean, well, so the, the if we're, if we're going to look at New York Film Critics Group as sort of a subset of the critic survey, because a lot of the members of the, there's somewhere close to 50 members of the New York Film Critics Group. It's, it's larger it's than It's gotten ever much bigger. Yeah, it's, 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 it has. And, and, um, and we pushed for that when I was a member because I wanted to make sure people understood the process through which you could become a member if you were qualified. And I think it's probably a good number right now. And, and what's, Significant about it, I think, is that these are very active, informed voters. So they do think about what has consensus and whether or not voting for something that has no chance makes sense, or do you vote for the thing you would be more okay with? So I don't know. I mean, if you look at the, let's say that the critic survey is a fairly good indicator of some of the films that have support from the New York Film Critics Group. 
there was a really close number one and number two in our critic survey, closer than I can ever remember. By Nomadland? It was Nomadland in number one, just a hair above Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And we I put this in the I was surprised that that did as well as it did. And I'm glad it was because very, it's on my fact, top 10 and I love, you and I both put that on our top 10s. Yeah, not only did it do well, it got, Never Rarely was on more ballots than Nomadland. But because it's a ranked system, you do a top 10 list, uh, Nomadland was in more number one slots. So that shows you just how close those two are. And I do think that th those are strong possibilities and First Cow, which was number three. Those are all, all going to do well with yeah. New York film critics. And I would hope Minari would, I have to keep saying it more carefully. Minari will do well. Minari, as, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think all, you know, who knows, maybe for uh, performance. I mean, I also think people want to divide and conquer, you know, spread the love, that kind of thing. Usually, I don't know exactly how it's going to be. Usually uh, best films voted on first. So people have that information and can sort of, help inform the voting process. Look, if a film is deserving of sweeping, it, it maybe it'll sweep, but this just doesn't feel like that kind of year. There's just a lot of options. In spite of everything, there's a lot of options, which I think is great. And does does that mean that Nomadland still is the front runner? I mean, probably, but I'll be curious to see how this trickles down in the weeks. No, ahead. it could be hurting Nomadland now. If it's perceived as the front runner, if it's perceived as the big gorilla in the room, ah, that's Searchlight, they're fine, they're gonna do great. You know, that could hurt it, with, especially with New York film critics, I would, I would say, I would suggest. They the might, I bet they give it some, that. I bet they give it some, some, you know, you guys get to do, you know, actress. Cinematography. Director uh, and all that. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and critics really like this movie. I mean, let's be clear. No, I mean, no question. Just, it's deserving. It's wonderful. We both put it, it on is. our list as well. It is. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's like if it's Nomadland versus Chicago 7 for Best Picture or what, or something of, of that magnitude, which one is going to be seen as sort of the more powerful entity? You know, I mean, Nomadland, I think in general, seems to present itself as a kind of underdog sort of movie. So it would have to be really, really like sweeping everything in, in it to a ridiculous degree for people to be, get kind of sick of celebrating it. I'm sort so. of curious how the Netflix of it all plays out with the critics because, and also in terms later on with the Academy in terms of there's still a perception that, you know, you and I both saw, I, I, at least I did, I saw Nomadland at a drive-in in a, in a theatrical setting. And and, and I, I, I keep wondering, I think they did that on purpose. I think it was smart. Um, a lot of people saw it at the uh, Telluride screening in LA. It's just um it's just an interesting year with with so much being consumed um in the uh in the home the, you know we'll see what happens. Uh you yeah, and I both I've... saw Tenet this week. Yeah. Oh boy. I mean we're talking about seeing things on a big screen and whether or not they're worth it. I don't know if this would have salvaged anything for me to be honest with you. I was quite disappointed even based on expectations from what had been out there about uh, this movie not being one of Nolan's best, I actually thought it was his worst. It's it's just a really dull movie that doesn't work. It's not about the, anything. The, yeah. There's well, no yeah, subtext. I mean, There's no subtext. I suspect, you know, when Nolan tends to have an idea, you know, maybe rooted in science and then sort of reverse engineers these sophisticated narratives. And even in something like Interstellar, which I think is sort of underappreciated to some degree, what you end up ha having is something that's like really complex at its core. And then 
varying degrees of characterizations that are sometimes not as great as the underlying idea, but there's still a lot going on there. And I think what happened here was there is some really sophisticated machinery involving time travel. But and he got caught up in it and he thought yeah. it was more interesting than it actually was. It doesn't well, it's matter. Actually, the problem is like the Boring. plot is, even if you understand the plot, and I, I'm pretty sure I understood what happened in this movie overall, it's just kind of cheesy and actually derivative. I mean, I, I could name, I was like, oh, that's like a Terminator subplot or whatever. You know, it's just like stuff that I've seen before. But he didn't even so. bother to make the characters interesting. I mean, and, and it isn't the actor's fault. They were as good as they could possibly be, but the dialogue was inane. There was some dialogue in this movie where I was like, whoa, that is yeah. really bad. Somebody needed to step in and say, I mean, honestly, it's there. He's not a bad director and visually there, there are some good ideas. So There's why not get somebody to write pieces. it? Fabulous set pieces. He's, these people, I'm going to say this. I have a great deal of respect for Chris, Christopher Nolan. It, it relates in a way to the Tom Cruise thing that happened this week. It's not dissimilar. Um, the role that Nolan has taken on at Warner Brothers, because he is the master of so many huge hits, because he keeps consistently delivering big budget tent poles that do really well and earn the studio a lot of money. They give him a lot of power and they, they kowtow to him. And they did in this case, they allowed this movie tenant to go out theatrically at a time when it really wasn't a good idea. And it did okay, given all the odds, all the different uh, problems with COVID in, in, you know, in, in uh, Europe and, and it also may have been a disappointment anyway, you well, know, given, given I was, what it is. This confirmed what I've been sort of hinting at based on the response, which is that you can only sort of get around a stinker so much in certain cases. And with a movie like this, as much as marketing dollars and hype can probably work in its favor, if this was an inception level experience in which you come out of it talking about dynamic sequences, the sophisticated machinery of the plot, lots to unravel. There would have been a word of mouth factor one way or another. Tenet didn't give people a reason to be excited to go to the movies again. Just its very existence was That not said, it is the kind of movie that is best seen on a big screen with the best sound. And the sound, let's, Oscar prognosticator Ann Thompson says, this will not get a sound nomination. It is so murky. You, he doesn't, you, he has different ears from everyone else. He doesn't listen to his sound people and he mixes it in a way that makes it very difficult to hear the dialogue. When you have it on, when you have the Blu-ray, you can put I put it on Blu-ray and I still couldn't understand. I mean, I was experience. watching it in a very high level, <laughs> gorgeous screen in my living room, good analog speakers that I have, you know. Well, but the, the problem that I discovered was that if you turn the subtitles on, it's not, it, it actually is, is not doing him any favors because then you, you pay more attention You see attention how inane they are. <laughs> yeah, the dialogue's not very good. This isn't the end. It's only the beginning. Like yeah, stuff like so that silly. where you're just like, just nix that, you know, the, the, so the, it's just so obvious that there are moments in that movie that did need to be there. So I have to tell you, I, I did a, a SAG Q&A with Gary Oldman last weekend on Zoom, obviously, and he was in London shooting some uh, Apple series. And he, he told this great story about he was driving, he was being driven home and he passed a feeder in London that was showing Mank and asked them if they could stop. And he went to the ushers and asked if he could pop in and he watched 10 minutes of Mank on a big screen. And he was like, David Fincher has been robbed of being able to talk about that 
aspect of that movie. And whatever you think about Mank, that's a gorgeous. No, I wish I'd film. seen it in a film, in a theater. Yeah, it, Are you it, kidding? It, 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 I want to see these films the as they're meant to be seen. I want to see them in all their glory with all the bell. Think about it. Think about all the crafts people. Think about the meticulousness of David Fincher and Chris. That Nolan. is a movie that needs how the they theatrical. are perfectionists. Yeah. They take take after take after. I talked to Gary Oldman this week also. I had a wonderful phone conversation with him. Making the and, rounds. And and I really enjoyed you know his con. You know they, they, he explained that the multi multiple takes. He explained how why that's done that way and what it's about and how he handles it, how he rolls with it. And and it's about getting every single aspect of the entire long sequence with all the different shots and all the different reactions and everything and having every, you know your your performance is okay, but we got to get everything in the picture perfect. Look, if 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 the sound and the and forget, you know, uh, Nolan, but <laughs> If the sound and the cinematography and the production design and the costume design, all these artists are working at their top, top capacity and you have to watch it on a small screen in your living room, it's not it's not the way it should be. Yeah. So bottom line, the indulgent auteur experience actually worth investing in of 2020 is David Fincher's, not Christopher Nolan's. I mean, that's that's a very interesting distinction, I think, in terms of what they're offering. I would on. suggest I would suggest that that Mank has its pleasures and its delights. And it's also structurally in terms of the script and the story and how it unfolds, um, not entirely satisfying. Well, I watched it twice uh, in a very short period of time. It was very sad. I've seen it twice, it too. I watched it's, it twice, uh, too. And I watched it carefully the second time to see what worked and what didn't work. And and my belief is that in the second half of Mank, uh, when you get into the Upton Sinclair, uh, you lose a lot of steam. And he's staying in that Victorville house for too long. And you're kind of wondering why. Um, and the best stuff in the movie is the Hollywood stuff, the stuff between him and Marion Davies and uh, and Amanda. Well, Seyfried. some of that happens later, and I and I did enjoy the um, the wine came up with the fish. That whole kind of everything. That's the sequence where he did the hundred takes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, on some level, it's a it's it is a cerebral experience more than than a lot of people might be willing to sort of settle in for but it does make you really think and it forces you to engage with what it's doing on on many levels at once i know it's no borat but nothing is so. you know the but there is a meme against fincher which is that he's cold and that he's uh not a don't meme, get emotionally yeah. involved um it's the, a bias. The, the, the word on the street uh that sticks a sticky thing is what i mean by a meme it's a thing. Well, yeah, it's like a, it's just, it, yeah, but that's I mean, what I mean. The meme associated with make that is, I mean, me, memes generally these days are like stupid things that are repeated on the internet indefinitely. And it's just that the word make doesn't funny. have to be a stupid thing repeated on the internet. It can be a sticky, uh, destructive thing repeated inside the academy. It, uh, yeah, I think well, that's, that's like, a meme too. Well, it's not the, these days when you say meme, you mean internet meme and inter not necessarily. Well, the internet meme with Mank is has also probably been an issue for it because, like, I've seen weird stuff where like people dress up the the the, the one sheet as a Marvel movie or like they just they like to use the word like replacing it in famous sayings and stuff. It's just being it's just being mocked in a very strange kind of superficial way. I'll put and let me put it Mank in another context. I am you and I both are are huge. Um, we, 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 
we're cinephiles and we love all of this stuff and we live for, I, I went to NYU cinema studies and studied Orson Welles. I mean, I love all this stuff. So I think my expectations were really, really high. And so uh, there's some perfect version of this that I want that I didn't get. I don't know what it was, but it well, wasn't what I wanted. Let's take that description and apply it to the next topic of conversation this week, which is Sundance, because expectations, I think we're all over the place for the kinds of films that could go to Sundance this year, what this lineup was going to look like in a year when, you know, it seems like people are wary of virtual festivals and we don't really know what's available, who's waiting and so forth. We got this lineup early, had a lot of time to go through it. The two of us spoke with the heads of the festival, Tabitha Jackson and Kim Yutani. And there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. I have to tell you, I, I was I felt like I was excited about a Sundance lineup like I would in, in any other year in the sense that the movies that I tend to get excited about are in the next section or they're they're from first time filmmakers or the ones that are sort of they're a little edgier maybe and during and this conversation uh, I, I I'm going to share this because I think I think maybe you'll be amused maybe the folks listening will be amused but it's like. It's like Anne and Eric were, were uh, you know, bad cop and, and good cop. And, and Eric was- Let me be clear, Anne called herself the bad I did, cop I, at the I, start. I, I so did, I know. No, Eric set me up. <laughs> Eric said, Anne, you do all the business questions and I'll do the, I love independent cinema questions. And they were like, I, well, I don't know if I said you're going to love this movie. <laughs> Eric, you're going to love that movie, you know? And I was like, I was smiling. Of course, well, because of course I mean, you are. But, and but, I, I mean, will these too. Are movies. I'm, yeah, I, I love mean, movies too. It's not a question of that. I think it's more like there there are certain films that I'm tracking that probably won't be especially attractive to buyers, aren't necessarily going to have, you know, awards potential, or if they do, it'll be a surprise and it'll take a long time to get to that conversation. But they're films that are exciting for aesthetic reasons. And on some level, a festival being a platform for that is still really important in our culture. And so that's what I want to be able to pay attention to. And you should, Otherwise, and that's your will. job. And that's, and IndieWire is going to be all over this festival looking for discoveries lo- and looking for talent and looking for new people to write about and, and exciting movies to write about. And we're going to do it up the wazoo. The side uh, effect of the, uh, the pandemic and the virtual festival is that some of these movies won't get picked up. Okay, yeah, that's the problem. Well, well it's, it's a real question of who, who would buy a movie. And a lot of the distributors anyway. who have movies who could have brought them to Sundance chose to sit it out and wait because the A, they don't know when uh, the yeah. movies are going to open. I applaud Neon for having the guts to bring uh, Night of Kings and the new Ben Wheatley movie, uh, which is about a virus <laughs> to to uh, to Sundance. But a lot of distributors are sitting it out. A lot of the big Zero documentary A24. filmmakers. No A24, That's- obviously no Netflix. We expected that. But I mean, people who have done well at Sundance in the past don't seem to be. Netflix you know, had a movie in on. and they were considering letting it play there and they, they chose to, to sit it out. Well, they, it's it's hard to see how they stand to benefit. And honestly, it's like that extra noise. When I'm at Sundance, a movie that is coming out in a couple of weeks is, is just fundamentally less attractive to me. I think that there is real value in introducing a bunch of new films to the market through Sundance that will need media to pay attention to them. Absolutely. And hopefully more will. 
And More it's, will it's than the lifeblood of the industry. And believe me, the talent agents and the casting agents and the, the people who are looking for uh, new directors to represent who, who are look, it's, it's a, this is like the, the, um, the, the nutrition that feeds our industry. It is one of the most important festivals in the world for this reason. And that will still happen. People are still going to look for that. Let's be clear. There are some films that could be commercial. I mean, you look at some, I don't, I don't know yet, but like Rebecca Hall's directorial debut. Passing, passing is one of right? the things I'm most interested. I did Tessa not know Thompson that she had a biracial Nega. mom. I yeah, didn't know Tess, that. So it's Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega in, in that story of living across race lines in 1929 based on a, a, a book. But and it's yeah, also it's a, her own experience personal, with her mom, who's an opera singer who who was biracial, married so to So people Hall. will be looking at that, but there's just tons of other stuff, you know, across the lineup that I think it could be really exciting. I mean, a film like Coda, which has Marley Matlin in in a story about a, a hearing, the only hearing child in a deaf family that's one of their opening night films. Like that sounds like a definite kind of crowd pleaser with a conversation around it. And, and then, then Questlove's like, um, uh, debut, Summer of Soul. He directed a documentary. This is a great story. It's all about uh, the summer of, of, of Woodstock. Right. And there was this whole other festival the Harlem, that was just uh, as big, festival. almost. Yeah. yeah, the Harlem Cultural Festival. I mean, that's... It's that I never heard of, and you never and, heard of. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it sounds fascinating. And Jared Carmichael directed a movie called On the Count of Three, which sounds like a really fun kind of black comedy and... Uh, I don't know. There's a movie called John in the Hole, which was in the uh, Cannes selection. So, you know, they selected it, but it didn't obviously play anywhere yet about a, a kid and it, who tracks his family in a hole, which obviously sounds very pandemic uh, oriented. And it's the kid is played for, by the kid from Captain Fantastic. Who, as I you like recall, that was like guy. A real breakout. He's a yeah, very good actor. He's a little older now, but it's, so so it's, it's just something about that when I, I when I when I saw that it was there, I was like, this this could be a really fun movie to talk about at Sundance. Now at Sundance is a different kind of thing. We're not going to be in the snow. If you have an Oculus headset like me, you might be able to go to their uh, their lounge on 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 virtual Main Street. So I encourage people to do that, but. Outside of that, I mean, I guess you can but chat New people Frontier, online. Uh, they were describing what that is going to be like, and it sounds cool. You don't have to have a VR headset to uh, experience right. a lot of the stuff. They've created a very fancy new platform for New Frontier. We used to all complain about how we had to stand in line for hours to get into some of these things to experience yeah. them. So this might be, there are going to be ways that this is an improvement on sloshing through the snow. And Well, uh, I know a lot of people have said that. I mean, the, 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 word, the term that um, Tabitha Jackson used was slippers instead of snow boots. And I'm sure that people who have to cram their schedules and don't necessarily do well in, in inclement weather are going to be very happy to have that experience in a more controlled environment. And will be more so. focused on the movies yet again. But what happened at Toronto, and you and I are, are accustomed to this, so we're used to it, but um, it's intense, man, when you've got these movies all lined up and they're all against each other and you have to pick one and you have to see it inside the time frame. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a Q&A and do you have time to watch that too? Or, or are you live? And that's the thing. To, for them to have mounted, that's expensive and difficult to mount every one of these things live with a live Q&A is, is a big deal too. But yeah, the, I think this, it will help to enhance the experience. I've said this before, but I, I really think that now is the time for transparency around data because after something like every time some, one of these things happens, it's an important test case because it's different from what came before. This is not TIFF. 
It's not New York. It's not, you know, other virtual festivals. And now it seems like Berlin might be going virtual. So every time they do it, they're doing it their own kind of way. And then they're trying to get things to audiences through various windows of exclusivity that replicate what a festival can do in the virtual space. So we need to be able to learn from that data. So I, I really hope that Sundance looks at that as an opportunity and tries to explain after we go through this stuff, uh, whether or not this was a successful festival, because we're only going to see it through the prism of being very plugged in industry insiders. I'd love to know how somebody in another state, let's say Alaska, buys tickets to Sundance or how a buyer who combs through the lineup for discoveries or a programmer for a regional festival who does the same experiences Sundance and whether or not they end up having a constructive experience because you have to satisfy all those different levels in order to maintain the identity. But the one point I will make uh, gently because it is Tab Tabitha Jackson's first festival and she is brilliant and charming and uh, she's going to be great over the long haul and Kim Yutani is a fabulous programmer. But it's hard to tell whether this pure program was purer than it needed to be or or were they able to balance some of the um you know a couple of titles that might have had a little more sex appeal for the marketplace i'm not saying that's their job but there's an element of reality there that would have conversely, greased the skids conversely usually those movies sell for a lot of money at sundance and then a few months later we get stories about how they bomb <laughs> right so maybe that, that never did them any favors in the first place. I mean, honestly, like what was, I don't even remember the titles of most of these movies or studio movies. Like nobody's talking about downhill anymore. I mean, I never even got around to it. That was it, terrible. It was just, I mean, it's just like terrible. one of those things where it's like, I understand why those movies go to Sundance, but I'm not sure that they usually contribute to what's constructive about it. It's hard to know. It's hard to know whether there was a real good one that they just didn't get or didn't like. And they were, we have to put in this fabulous uh, international film from over here instead. You know, I don't know. I, I, I applaud them. I applaud them. But, but, but the, the, the usual marketplace is, is, is skinny in this situation. Yeah, and there's just so many unknown factors here because what even are people going to be looking for? We don't know the full That's timeline part of the issue. for it's true. For, well, for the vaccine, we don't know what the value of anything is. Is is our the our theaters as an idea going to start having some relevance in in what Anthony Fauci calls the back half of 2021, or are these all going to be VOD acquisitions? I mean, a lot of these movies might be anyway, just because of the nature of the market, even in a pre-COVID time. But it, is, it does open some, some questions for the bigger ones. Let's say the Rebecca Hall film. What are people going to be demanding for that? That's one of the things we're going to have to learn in the next few weeks is how are sales agents Absolutely correct. That. Absolutely right, Eric. So next week, it'll be interesting. We're, we're going to be sort of heading into the, the end of the year for recording a special issue that edition that'll go up right before new year's but for the holidays we'll have a whole bunch of new information with these critics groups and i'm, I'm sure there's going to be some other stuff sort of trickling out there but i don't think there's anything left for us to see i do you have any serious blind spots left i feel like i, I have that almost like a godlike awareness of everything that's out there at i this point. caught up with two things this week i caught up with the mauritanian which is okay i have not seen that <laughs> stx okay which stars to tahar rahim um, okay. and Jodie Foster and I'm writing Benedict it down Cumberbatch 
And uh, it's a late entry. Uh, they've just, you know, I guess there was some debate about whether to open it before the end of the year and make it eligible for the Oscars. They're going for it, and they yeah. should go for it. Um, it's actually quite good. Um, okay. And and uh, Tahir Tahir Rahim gives an extraordinary performance, actually, as um, as someone who was accused of being part of the 9/11 plot and mm. uh, was held in jail for like 14 years. Seriously. Wow. Okay. And 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 without any accusations uh, really being placed against him, and it's about the legal battle uh, to get him free. And he he lives in Berlin. He's a guy who's around and uh, remarkable. Um, and and it's directed by Kevin McDonald, who I've always liked. I think he's mm. a very smart, canny director. You know, it's a BBC uh, kind of thing. And then the other uh, movie I saw was called Supernova. Oh, okay. And it stars. That is another um, blind spot for me. That's bleaker, and it stars uh, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth as uh, a gay couple who are on the road in a van. It reminds me a little bit of that movie that Donald Sutherland and uh, Helen Mirren did, uh, where one of them is maybe losing his mind, and and they're both really smart, sharp, fabulous clever people. So that's an issue uh, as they, you know, a little bit like Alice. Um, great, great performances from these two guys. Really good. Now, do you think it has real awards potential? I mean, these are both small movies that could have used a festival launch and they're both being finished late in the day. They're both British ish. And, Hmm. uh, and so they're coming in uh, quietly and I don't know, it's an interesting time. There's all sorts of opportunities and some of the late breaking movies, um, if they're given enough marketing and enough uh, support, could, could these are both movies that the actors will respond to if they see the movies. Now, the other thing I'm hearing a lot from people, um, Linda Opes said something on Twitter um, uh, that I noticed. A lot of people are trying to watch movies and not getting very excited about them. And that's where the critics come in. I, I to go circle back to our beginning, uh, beginning of the of the talk we've had today. I, I think uh, the, the critics groups are going to allow people to uh, go in the direction of some of the best stuff out there instead of wading through a lot of dross. The Academy portal has like a hundred titles, and a lot of them yeah. are drag. Who needs the Academy when you have the critics? Bottom line, <laughs> no, that that's should just be the real award season. That's you pay your twenty five, you know, your twelve thousand five hundred bucks, and you Ugh. can put your movie on that stupid portal. Yeah, forget the portal. And just the screening, wait for the critics. The screeners are coming in. Nomadland came in. Yes, I got a very, very beautiful Nomadland DVD. Too bad I've already seen it, so it's kind of a placeholder because i'm not going to be seeing people at holiday parties that i can hand it off to anytime soon i know i used to do a little (laughs) don't tell anybody but i used to do a slightly controlled lending library no longer who doesn't no longer i miss my shoebox we keep the shoebox and then by the time i go to sundance my wife would have like a little stack of movies that she needed to keep up with because i'd been talking about them all year and she just like powered through those harder with the links so that's something to think about in any case Anne, i will see you next week we will have plenty to talk about then and i cannot wait so have a good one i'm looking forward to seeing you at the holiday party later oh yes that too (laughs) off the record (laughs) Bye. bye